Hey, it's Nick Walters again with the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest. And we are here yet again for our webinar Wednesday. And we are not letting you down again, nor are we letting you down with our um, guests that we've got. We're tickled to death to have Maddie Mead on here from Hiptecture, uh, calling in live from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So it's probably a little chillier there than it is for us here at, in central Mississippi, Maddie. But welcome. We're tickled to death to have you on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and and yes, it's definitely probably a bit colder than where you're at right now. And, and just to clarify, Sun Valley, Idaho. Oh, Sun I Valley, thought you were in Coraline. Then I guess but, I messed that up. No, that that's quite all right. Sun Valley is uh, well. You can probably guess the weather here today. If you had to guess, <laughs> what would you say? I, I, I would guess uh, the high is 52. I don't know. You're actually pretty close, and it's sunny. It's always sunny in Sun Valley. Always sunny in Sun Valley. Are you with the Chamber? Are you with uh, Chamber of Commerce? Or are you with uh, Hip Texture? Right. You're, you're doing a good <laughs> Chamber. <laughs> I, I, wear, I wear many hats. I wear many hats. So do I. That's why I've got a bald spot in the back. But that's another story. So uh, I keep waiting for the thing that Hemp is going to fix, male pattern baldness. You don't have to worry about that. But I keep waiting for that one to come out. So There's someone probably working on that. I hope there is. I hope there is. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. So look, um, tell us, give us a little uh, Matty background, just you and 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 then we'd love to know what your hemp aha moment it was at the time that you went, man, this is really the thing. And then tell us all about the cool stuff that you guys are doing at Hemp Texture. So that's a lot, but go on and jump. Yeah, well, first off, Nick, thanks for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be with you and share what we're working on. My name is Maddie Mead and I'm the founder and CEO of Hempitecture. At Hempitecture, we like to say we specialize in the most sustainable building materials on the planet. Uh, if you're on this webinar or podcast, you probably uh, have an interest in industrial hemp, and, and we do too, because we believe it's an incredible feedstock for building materials. So I'll kind of walk you through a little bit of how we got to that aha light bulb moment. And it really dates back to my time as an undergraduate student studying architecture and environmental sciences at a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And uh, while I was there, Nick, I saw a mountain grow. I saw a mountain grow in the distance and overtake the uh, horizon. And that mountain was not just any mountain. It was a mountain of garbage. That <laughs> mountain of garbage was Seneca Meadows landfill in the beautiful wine region of upstate New York. Why on earth would they would they do that? Well, in this one location, there was uh, really a need for some more economic development. And they said, why not bring in trash from New York City, New Jersey, and everywhere else for that matter? And this was really surprising to me. And, and I became kind of interested as to what was going into this landfill. And what I found was that a big portion of what's going into landfills is construction and demolition waste. So mm -hmm. when I learned about this issue or, or potentially the, this challenge, it also brought to mind an opportunity. What if we could have buildings at their end of life, maybe go back to the earth or have a more sustainable uh, end of life instead of just going into a landfill and never biodegrading or composting. So I kind of took my uh, architecture hat and my environmental sciences hat and put them on at, at the same time and said, well, what kind of building materials are out there that we could utilize to solve this problem? 
And then in my research, I also began to understand some of the challenges with the built environment as it exists today. You know, buildings and their operation. So, you know, the buildings that you and I are sitting in right now, which, by the way, we spend over 90% of our lives indoors, they're responsible for about 40% of our energy consumption and 40% of our carbon footprint. So this is a big piece of the pie chart that we need to address to really create a more sustainable built environment. So this incense of seeing the landfill grow and realizing that buildings really have an impact on our environment made me interested in natural building materials. And it was a senior year thesis study that I was doing that I called the contemporary relevance of earth architecture. And I looked at what people did before the industrial revolution, how were homes built? You know, they use a lot of stone, they use straw, they use clay, materials from the earth. And it occurred to me that we really kind of lost our way with that. We were no longer building with the earth. And in this study, I was going from region to region, and it was in finding what they were doing in France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and using hemp and limestone as a building material that I had my aha moment. Uh, such so that I ran to my professor, who was my uh, mentor and was helping me direct my thesis study, and I said, okay, we're going back to the drawing board. I'm changing my thesis study. It's all about hemp. It's all about hemp as a building material. And they looked at me kind of funny and they said, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, this is a real thing. They're, they're doing it in Europe and, and this has promise and it's carbon negative and healthy and non-toxic and fireproof and all these benefits. And he said, why don't you, you stick with the original game plan and incorporate hemp as a focus in this thesis study? So that's what I did. I incorporated it as a focus into my study and really dove headfirst into understanding how hemp is used as a building material. And then sought to understand why is it not used here in the United States? Nick, it, it didn't take a lot of research to figure out why it was not used in the United States. This is 2012, uh, five or six years before the farm bill was even entertained and, and allowed to grow industrial hemp here in this country. So. It was a little bit early, but there were some hemp buildings built in the United States at the time. And for me, I said, wow, what, what an opportunity. We need to continue this work. You know, there was one of the first hemp buildings in Asheville, North Carolina, designed by Anthony Brenner. Uh, and, and I took inspiration from this and, and saw myself at that point in time as someone who wanted to experiment, design with, and build with industrial hemp in the built environment. How about that? And it's almost like you've said that once or twice before. That's that's uh, that's uh, really cool. So how did you how did you end up in in Sun Valley? From um, you read the Good Chamber message like you just gave. It's always in the valley, and you thought that'd be a great spot. Well, it's it's actually a pretty funny story. So when I was doing this undergraduate research study. Uh, I had also trademarked the name Hempitecture and really started to create a startup company concept around this idea and began to push it forward through these business plan competitions and uh, sought to seek seed funding for my venture through these business plan competitions. Well, uh, again, you know, this is 2012. 
I'm on stage standing in front of 100, 200, in one instance, 300 people presenting this idea of building homes with a Schedule One substance. And uh, inevitably, time and time again, I'd be laughed at. People would say, this is uh, the craziest, dumbest thing I've, I've ever heard. What are you talking about? And I would point to the examples uh, from other countries and suggest this is something that's already happening. And I want to be on the ground floor of this industry as it develops and evolves. And so in these business plan competitions, I uh, walked away with no money. But what I did walk away with was some press, some publicity. And I believe there was one article that was published that said, you know, student pitches homes with him. And it got shared around on Facebook. And through the power of social media, this Facebook post found its way to someone who lives in Sun Valley, Idaho. And he read this article. And now at this point in time, I had just graduated college. I was uh, trying to figure out my next step. You know, what was my career move from here as a recent graduate with a very expensive piece of paper in hand? Mm -hmm. uh, that would be my diploma. That right. is, uh, what am I going to do? And my phone rang one day and this gentleman asked me, he said, Hey, is this Maddie Mead from Hempitexture? And I was a little taken aback because I had never been addressed as Maddie Mead from Hempitexture before. Uh, so I think I was answering with a pretty surprised tone of voice and, and perhaps even a question mark at the end of it. Uh, yes, this is Maddie Mead from Hempitexture. And he said, you know, I read this article and I thought what you were doing is really, really cool. And I wanted to know if you would consider coming to Idaho and working with us to build a hempcrete building. And I think I pulled the phone away and looked at the phone and said, is this, is this a joke? Is this a prank call? And I think my response was something to the effect of, man, I don't even know where Idaho is. So if you're going to pay me to build a hempcrete building for you, then let's do it. I'll, I'd go anywhere. I'd go to Mars if uh, you, you wanted me to, to make this a reality. I really did feel called to it. And uh, that's what brought me out to Sun Valley initially, which of course was just for a supposed to be for a short period of time. And I believe I had told my family, friends, oh, I'll be back in no time. Uh, just, you know, I'm going to build this building, work on this project and use it as a stepping stone. Well, I really did fall in love with the place. And uh, eight years later, Nick, um, and, and I know you were, you were joking a little bit earlier about having my, uh, my, my chamber of commerce hat on. Well, actually now I do volunteer for the city of Ketchum. I'm on the uh, city of Ketchum, which is the Sun Valley area city, uh -huh. uh, planning and zoning board and historic preservation board. So it's a place that I feel really close to and, and now consider my home. And as such, we built multiple hempcrete buildings uh, in the area. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, tell us, <clears throat> for those of us that might be novices, what is the difference between hempcrete and hemp fill? Because I know yes. there's a difference, right? But I mean, but, but, or, or maybe even better yet, tell us about more of the building materials that you found are really, you know, not only what Hempitecture plays around with and, and mm -hmm. deals with, but also other building materials that we ought to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll kind of frame that through my story and, and just my experience in working in this space and, and really working to grow a market where there was very, you know, 
little action and very few homes were built. And, and I had mentioned earlier that in that research study I did, I became really, really interested and fascinated in hempcrete or hemp lime, which is that a building material that's combined uh, with the wooden core of hemp stock, limestone, and water in a very specific ratio and proportion. Ultimately, it sets up and solidifies into a carbon capturing fireproof wall mass. Well, this wall mass, this material hempcrete or hemp lime as it's sometimes referred to, uh, really is a system of building. And often I liken it to straw bale, uh, which sometimes helps, sometimes doesn't help because sometimes people uh, don't know too much about straw bale, which is okay. But, but think of these as, as off the standard path of building. You know, we're thinking outside the two by four or two by six wall, and it's really a system or method of building. So hempcrete, is an approach to building. It's not just a product. It's a product replacement, certainly. However, it is an approach to building. You know, for a hempcrete home, you really need to consider hempcrete from the earliest phases of your project. We're talking the early architectural design and planning phases. Even the structural engineering with a hempcrete home might be a little bit different than a standard home. So this is the area that we were initially really interested in, and we still are interested in. We've done a lot of work in this space to date. We've worked on over 20 hempcrete building projects across the United States by way of quite literally building these houses ourselves with our hands or supplying materials or consulting or working with other folks to realize their hempcrete homes. But in this process of building these 20 plus homes, we realize that there's a challenge to reorienting the order of operations in a building system. There's a challenge to incorporating a material that very few people know how to work with. There's also a challenge on the supply chain side of things. Where do you get the, the right building grade hemp, uh, hemp herd? Where do you get the limestone binder? And so while these are things that we've worked to solve and we're continually working to solve, we also recognize that perhaps there's other areas that hempitecture could have a big impact on. We can continue to focus on hempcrete, yet we can expand and broaden our focus to incorporate more hemp-based building materials. And so we really did kind of have a, a pivot moment where we said, okay, we're working on hempcrete, we're developing that market. This market to develop, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy. What else is out there that we can wrap our hands around and get in as many homes as possible? I do want to point out that Hempitecture is a public benefit corporation, and really our mission is to diversify and get these building materials out there as much as possible. Because in doing that and getting these materials in as many homes as possible, we're actually helping realize our public benefit mission of reducing the embodied carbon of the built environment. And so we realized that there was a different building material out there, and that is hemp wool, which is a hemp texture trade name for hemp insulation. So that's where we're really focused on today, Nick. All right. <clears throat> so you'll want to tell us more about that. I mean, how is how is it? Is it all about um, how it's getting processed, decorticated, whatever way that it's coming through or coming out of that process and in a certain way that you need it? Because if you turn dial 16 too much, it doesn't do right, but but it does if you, you know, stomp on one foot or 
put it down <laughs> yeah. 100 degrees or I mean what are I mean various factors I'm not looking for your secret sauce I'm just asking is that part of the things that you guys had to figure out ah here's the way we need it and this is the way it's going to work better yeah so going back to that idea of hempcrete as a system hemp wool really is a one-to-one -one product replacement it can replace conventional insulation products like hemp uh, or sorry like fiberglass rock wool spray foam materials like that and so um in the earliest stages we were not manufacturing this product we were actually importing this product from a manufacturer and seeing hey is there an appetite for this in the united states and what we found is that you know the more we put this out there and the more that we push this forward we did see that there was an interest in using hemp insulation yet the cost landed to our facilities so we have two distribution facilities in the united states the cost landed makes it a lot more expensive than the conventional alternatives. And so that was really what brought us to kind of our next chapter of realizing, hey, we need to bring this to the United States. We need to manufacture this in the United States with U.S. grown material. And Hempitexture at this point in time is not a vertically integrated company. And we owe our, you know, kind of our business plan to the emergence of the hemp industry as a whole. And I think the hemp industry as a whole is in a very early on phase where we're learning. Right. We're learning how to decorticate. We're learning which seeds work right. We're learning which genetic cultivars are right for which areas. And subsequently, we're learning which fiber variety is going to work well for our hemp pool product with our U.S. manufacturing. We're learning the exact specifications that make a higher R-value product, which stands for uh, thermal insulation or thermal resistance, uh, R for resistance. We're learning which fiber plays into a more thermally resistant insulation product. So we still have a long way to go in figuring out the best configuration for doing this here in the United States. But I think that's part of the exciting part, yet also the scary and, and uh challenging part of being early to an industry is you do get to you know learn and work through problems and we're certainly not the first people in the world that are seeking to make hemp-based insulation but we're some of the first people that are seeking to make this for the u.s market we're some of the first people that you know with the emergence of this hemp industry here and decortication and fiber uh, cultivars being put in the ground we're some of the first people that have an opportunity to really take a run at this. So we don't take that for granted whatsoever. And we're really excited at moving forward towards this vision of realizing actual U.S. grown process and manufactured building materials. That's very cool. You know, there's nothing like walking that fine line between self and unemployed that'll get you to working a little bit harder every morning, right? And get you to thinking a little bit more and it, uh, jumping out there a little bit more, huh? It, it, it sure makes you jump out of bed in the morning. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've noticed those folks at American Express really don't care what time you go to bed or how long you work. Uh, I've noticed <laughs> that that's not high on their list of things to, to worry about. So um, what what do you uh, what what do you think are the main um, chokeholds and not just the industry as a whole, but but specifically about building materials because i hear different things and i think some of these things are the same and you know when you and i first met when we were um out at fort benton 
um, out at uh, with our friends at IMD Hemp. I know we talked about a lot of that. A lot of those groups um, conversations were along some of those same lines. What, what do you think is the is the main chokehold? Is there one or are there a couple? I think there's a few, Nick, and, and I think they're on different levels. And uh, sometimes I like to use the analogy of you're, you're kind of always climbing a mountain and you think that you see the summit, but you realize you're just getting to uh, a, a spot that you can see better and, and you realize you're well far away from the summit and there's a lot further to climb yet. And so there, let, let's break this down a few different levels. I think the obvious level is just the availability of the material in the United States to manufacture the products that we are seeking to manufacture. Uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation about our manufacturing facility that we're building here in Southern Idaho three years ago because there is no availability of fiber. And even now, that availability of fiber is, is scarce. Uh, we hope that with strategic partners like IND Hemp and Nick, that's exactly where, where you and I met at their incredible facility they're building there in Fort Benton. Uh, we hope that with partners like that, we don't have to be a vertically integrated company. We can support the companies that are supporting farmers by buying the material that the farmers are putting in the ground. Yet that material, those seeds that those farmers are putting in the ground and that material that they're harvesting, you know, for a lot of these folks, it's the first time they're doing it. And, you know, we, I think we owe a lot to the, to the people that are pioneering that side of the industry here. So I think maybe a bottleneck or a chokehold is, is really just figuring out what works well for where. And then when you figure out what works well and where, then how do you turn it into that ideal feedstock for our building material? So we have some supply chain you know, challenges that I, I feel are really being solved with, with some uh, resolve and, and in stride. Yet, you know, that brings us to the next level. And the next level is, okay, we can manufacture this, this material here in the United States thanks to the availability of that raw material. Well, you know, to get this into homes across the United States and to get this into building projects, there's a number of boxes that we have to check off. Some of those boxes include ASTM standards, mm -hmm. uh, you know, UL certification, Green Guard. There's all these certifications and things that really uh, add to the value of your product. And while that might not be just a, you know, like a, a stopping point, it is essentially a hoop to jump through. And those hoops to jump through, it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes energy. And so we realize that there might be some ramp up time to get our facility fully operational and producing a material that's then ready to go into homes and buildings. Then I think there's another level, Nick, of, of you know, challenges or, or chokeholds and it's market acceptance, market acceptance of a new product. You know, uh, we tend to want to go to places of comfort as human beings and places of comfort uh, often are places that we know or have familiarity with. So innovation in the built environment often uh, gets stifled because we favor materials, methods, and strategies that are now wholly outdated uh, and antiquated. And this is actually an issue in the construction industry as a whole, where there's this mentality of, well, back then in my day, I did this this way and it worked then, so I'm going to do this now. Well, times have changed since 60 years ago. And there are better materials out there than fiberglass or spray foam and hemp wool is, is one of them. So I think kind of the last ceiling to break through, or at least you know, going back to that mountain analogy of like the last 
uh, fall summit to climb is really gaining market confidence. How do we convince customers, people uh, that are prospective users of these products that there are benefits to this product, both for their health, for the environment, uh, as well as just their energy and utility bills. I mean, our, our product will help you save money on heating and cooling. And so, you know, we, we do have a game plan for addressing a lot of these issues, one of which is case studies. You know, let's, let's put our product in a house that's designed identically to a house next to it and evaluate the energy performance. And these are all long-term plays. These are things that are going to take time and effort and energy. Yet, I think uh, myself and our team, we're, we're in this for the long haul. And we see this being something that has the potential to do a lot of good for our built environment. There you go. Well, you know, that's one of the things that we're interested in too, right, is, is helping to produce that fiber, certainly with our co-op members uh, that are growing, but, but uh, growing a, a particular variety, depending on where that is. We're all learning more about that. We are going to be in our second round of um, seed trials that we're going to be doing in the southeast. Uh, so we're partnering up with some well-known names in the genetics world uh, uh, in North America for very soon to be announced what we're going to be doing with them in the southeast, as well as some collaboration with uh, several universities and others about how we you know, learn about that just from the genetics and all of that. Things we don't know, right? Just things that we got we got to figure out. But then also, how do we partner with with good folks like Hempitecture and others that say, okay, we've got a formula, we've got stuff we know works, and and now we love to find more places to manufacture, or we'd like to find more places where we can integrate these materials into a myriad of different things. So finding those things out, being in on the front end. Uh, as much as we can. I mean, we, we we came to the party a little bit late, but we're still at the party. And I think uh, maybe while some of the bad actors have hopefully, um, and I mean this pun literally, weeded themselves out in such a way that we we're, we are not going to have to, you know, focus on uh, bad stuff, right? We can focus mm -hmm. on all the good things. And it's an education opportunity is the way we look at it. I mean, I'd rather teach somebody something new for the first time that have to unteach them on something that they got bad information on. And I think that's an opportunity for all of us, just from the industry for, for what it's worth. Uh, absolutely, Nick. And I think the work that you're doing needs to be carried out 10 times over and you're not late to the party, you're early. And so consider yourself an early adopter because we need this work to happen and we need to have for it to happen regionally. And because what might work for you in your region is going to be different than elsewhere. So I think right. so long as we have this spirit of, you know, collaborative cooperation and making sure that, you know, it's, it's not at this point, I think there's sure there's always trade secret, but when it comes to the, the cultivars and what works where and how to process and how to harvest, this all goes back to the farmer. And if it doesn't make sense for the farmer, and, and I am quoting Ken Elliott here uh, from IND, if it doesn't make sense for the farmer, it doesn't make sense for anyone. It has to work for the farmer. And so I think that's where we start. And if we have that mentality of propping up that part of the supply chain and making sure that they're taken care of, then the rest can continue to evolve and develop in a way that's really going to be beneficial for folks like us down the line. There you go. There you go. And that's even even built off part. And look, we'll be glad to take 
any questions if uh, some of our folks who were chimed in here would like to um, uh, would like to jump in. So, you know, that's why we call ourselves the growers and not the farmers, because that's the other beautiful thing about this about this industry is that there are all kinds of people who have never been in production agriculture before uh, that are not growing 10,000 acres of fill in the blank that would like to know that there's a place where they could grow 50 acres or 82 acres or 13 acres. And, and I think um, uh, what you guys are doing uh, is a, a great opportunity to know if there's regional ways to, to process. And that's another whole couple of podcasts to fill up, right? I mean, we'll get to all of that and, and we're not in any hurry to get there, but we know there's things like that that I think are, are the most uh, promising because we can do fiber anywhere. Right. I mean, there's not anything that's really keeping us from from being able to grow fiber other than what variety works best. And we're getting to those things. So mm -hmm. I see we got a question there. Do you uh, can you see that or do you need me to read it to you? Um, yeah. So the, the question is, uh, please discuss your forthcoming facility in Jerome, Idaho. What is the notional timeline to get it up and operating and how many jobs do you expect to create there? How about that? Yep. That's a great question. A bunch of great questions. That's, that's a great yeah, series of questions there, Michael. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, so we are currently in the process of building out and uh, getting our facility in Jerome, Idaho operational. We're occupying about 22,000 square feet of industrial space, and that space will house our manufacturing equipment to produce non-woven fiber-based products, uh, of course, of which encompasses hemp wool insulation, um, our timeline is ambitious. We hope to be operational by July of 2022, but we also know that things do take longer than you know sometimes you hope. And we want to do this right the first time. And so we're bringing in the right people and uh, really surrounding ourselves with manufacturing expertise, engineering expertise, architectural expertise, as well as just equipment uh, OEM expertise. And when I say OEM, the original equipment manufacturer that is making our equipment for us to create mm -hmm. the products we're creating. So we have this timeline that certainly is ambitious, but uh, there has been a lot of movement on the back end that is kind of, you, know, you see the tip of the iceberg, yet you don't see what's under the, the surface. We've uh, ordered our equipment uh, you know, a few months ago, yet we announced it just recently. And so we did that so we could get that uh, process moving because this is not just something you can go to Home Depot and, and buy. It is uh, a very elaborate uh, series of, of pieces of equipment that work together to create these end finished products. Um, once we are operational, though, we will definitely need at least five full-time employees, and that could increase based on our need for scaling. Uh, and when I say our need for scaling, that would mean uh, our increased line capacity. Right now, the manufacturing line that we're purchasing is capable of producing a very significant amount of material. And with that significant amount of material comes you know, warehousing overhead and distribution networks that need to be in place. So we see that we could definitely grow to 10 uh, employees at the facility within the first one to two years. Very cool. And the whole idea behind all of it, right, is that, that it's it's scalable, not only there, but you could very easily 
figure out the things you're learning there and put them in other areas of the country so that you could distribute and be able to, to supply the demand as the demand continues to grow. Yes, that's exactly correct, Nick. Really, we view what we're creating here in Idaho as a, a blueprint that could be replicated elsewhere. And, and I do want to just touch on the idea of, of why Idaho and, and why this location, um, because Idaho, uh, Nick, you, you had used the uh, metaphor earlier of being last to the party. Uh, yeah. If anyone was last to the party, it was Idaho. It That's was right. Idaho. Uh, without a doubt, we were, we were last to the party. We were the 50th state to legalize industrial hemp. Um, yet, with being the 50th state to legalize industrial hemp, We've got some pretty good regulations in place and a pretty good program that's going to be rolled out here uh, sometime this October, we anticipate. And so with that, you know, we're afforded to uh, you know, have this plan that's in line with the 2018 Farm Bill. Many states are on a 2014 plan and they need to update and move forward. So we're you know, going to be up to date. Uh, yet, you know, where our facility is located in Jerome, Idaho, if you drew a 10-hour radius from that facility, it encompasses a lot of the fiber cultivation in the United States, from Colorado, up to Fort Benton, even into uh, Alberta and the southern Great Plains of, of Alberta. And then ultimately, I think, you know, Washington, uh, which is a little, little nascent in, in the hemp space. And then, of course, Oregon, which is early in the hemp space, more of a focus on, on cannabinoids at, at this point in time. But I believe shifting a focus towards fiber. We're in an ideal location to collect from all these farms, turn it into a finished product, and then send it on its way to major markets. So it is a strategic play to be located in Idaho. Most people don't think of Idaho as a centrally located state, uh, but it is centrally located to the Rocky Mountain West, Pacific Northwest, and California markets, which uh, we feel makes it a really good location. Well, it's also a, a place where you've got more people who are probably more early adopters to wanting to make sure that their carbon footprint in their buildings are are is being taken care of too. Because you know there are plenty of other folks that would say. Heck no, we're not going to spend that, or we're not going to fool with that, or I don't really, I'm not worried about it as much. And and that's a broad brush statement, but those many of those states that you mentioned right there are certainly more progressive. I think uh, not only just their people, but their their uh, local laws and regulations and such as that. You know, I mean, that's uh, uh, I think you would find some of that that you don't have to convince them or tell them why this is important. There may be other places in the country that you have to tell them, no, we really need to, pay, you know, we need to pay attention to this. So anyway. exactly. No, I, I think you're exactly right there. I think uh, folks generally in the Rocky Mountain Northwest do have an interest in sustainability, perhaps more so than, than other regions, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, where there's uh, a strong interest in that. Uh, but the other thing about where we're located is it is cold. Uh, you know, it tends to get cold here at night and hot during the day. And with those temperature swings, it makes insulation that much more important. And having a good thermal envelope that's well insulated rises in a priority level. So even if you didn't believe in anything about, you know, green or carbon capture or sustainability, you know that you need insulation to save money on your heating and cooling bills. And we hope to be a source of regional insulation supply 
hopefully ultimately at a price that is competitive with some of the other uh, more mainstream brands that are out there. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, I see Michael's got one more one more question and, and we'll end our time together on this. Uh, talk about this uh, fellowship you got with the Department of Energy. What did you do yep. and how did you hope to get out and what do you hope to get out of it is this question. Yeah, thank, thanks, Michael. So, um, gosh, it seems like years ago at, at this point in time, we applied to a number of different accelerators at different national labs. So national labs are basically places in the United States that the DOE or other governmental organizations fund to spur innovation and research in generally energy efficiency, energy production, uh, things relating to energy, of course. And so uh, we ultimately were granted an acceptance to a fellowship program at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And the program there is sponsored by the Department of Energy and the Building Technologies Office, and it's called Innovation Crossroads. So what they're trying to do is bring in companies that are working to innovate new products, new ideas, new methods within the built environment, and give them the resources of the federal government to uh, accelerate the adoption of those as well as apply research to it. So my business partner, Tommy, is representing Hempitecture at Oak Ridge National Lab. He's actually in Knoxville, Tennessee right now at the laborato laboratory. And what we hope to get out of this is a few things. At the very least, we're going to get to research and develop our product in some of the most state-of-the-art facilities in the world. Sure. That's number one. Number two is that I really think that we're soon to see uh, really an emphasis placed on carbon capturing building materials or building materials that show uh, carbon storage. And I think the DOE's interest in hempitecture might relate to what's coming down the line in terms of carbon credits. And maybe those carbon credits are just for farmers. Maybe there's a tax credit for using a product that actually has a CO2 neutral or CO2 negative footprint. And while we're not directly authoring that relationship, the DOE's effort, I believe, in working with Hempitecture is sure, yeah, first and foremost, accelerate adoption of our product and our technology and, and what we're building here. But to see if there is a pathway forward in encouraging the country and new development to be more responsible and to be more environmentally friendly. You know, in the United States, we can look to Europe and in some areas, and, and I wouldn't say all industries, but in some industries, we can see that Europe is 10 years ahead of us. Take, for instance, France that just passed legislation that said 50% of a new home construction has to be from renewable natural resources. So there are companies building massive insulation factories and continuous handling factories and, and new innovative ideas and, and building materials are being spurred there by the government because of legislation that is seeking to make the built environment more sustainable. Nick, just bringing this full circle that, you know, the reason that we started Hempitecture and, and believe in the mission of Hempitecture, buildings and their operations are responsible for 40% of our energy consumption and 40% of our carbon footprint, or, or just a little less, it's an about number. And so by using natural materials from the earth, we can change that. And so that is ultimately what we hope to elevate with our work in the Department of Energy and at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Love it, that's cool. Uh, um, 
Great information. Matty Mead, CEO, visionary, super cool guy with uh, uh, Hippotecture. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, letting all of our folks uh, here at the Industrial Hemp Growers Podcast know more about what you guys are doing. We'll have all uh, their information in the show notes so you can always connect with them and learn more about them. Follow Matty on LinkedIn in particular. He's got cool stuff that he shows you on there all the time. Uh, and uh, and you're glad to, uh, you're uh, able to follow a lot of that and find even, even more information out. So thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Nick, my pleasure. It's a uh... Great to connect with you again after meeting you in Montana and really a pleasure to be here on the podcast. And yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. You can contact me on LinkedIn. And then of course, our website, hempitecture.com is always a good place to go if you're looking to learn more. There you go. Well, look, next week, uh, uh, our guest is going to be the great one. Okay. Joy Beckerman is going to be on with us and, and uh, she'll fill your funnel up with so much information. You won't know what to do with it. She's uh, a, <laughs> Uh, you talk about early on, right? You talk about started the party uh, uh, is joy, and so we're 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 thrilled to have her be a part of what we're doing as well, too. Terrific! Thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you again next time. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.